In celebration of our 10th birthday, the Los Angeles Review of Books is hosting a series this October called Semi-Public Intellectual Sessions, a month-long virtual festival of ideas. We invite you to join us for smart, timely conversations with some of our favorite writers, scholars, and critics on topics ranging from technology and misinformation to leaving academia, the criminal justice system, to the place of criticism. The series is a fundraiser for LARB, a reader-supported nonprofit. We invite attendees to make donations as they're able to help support the work of our staff and contributors and keep LARB paywall-free for the next 10 years. Go to lareviewofbooks.org slash 10th to learn more. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocha. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Amia Srinivasan about her debut book, The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century. It's a collection of essays. Most generally, I would say probably about the intersection of sex and politics and the different ways in which, like, outside forces sort of shape really personal lives and personal decisions um, and personal acts. And it's incredibly impressive in the way that it manages to navigate extremely tricky questions and territories. Also in the way that it really boils down these complicated points into essential truths that also don't feel like, like they shut down possibility of things being complicated, which obviously when you mix sex and politics, they are. Yeah. I appreciated that a lot. And it's a good like primer to, to what feminism is in the current moment. I thought that was a real strength of it as well. Yeah, I agree. And she's an incredibly smart person to talk to. So maybe we should just get to it. Okay, let's do that. We're joined today by writer, critic, and philosopher Amiya Srinivasan, whose new book is called The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century. Amiya is a professor of social and political theory at All Souls College at Oxford and a contributing editor at the London Review of Books. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, Harper's, The New York Times, and many other publications. Her debut book, The Right to Sex, is a collection of essays that probe how we should think and talk about sex. Srinivasan grapples with the subject from a variety of angles, including the Me Too movement, the history of feminism and pornography, and the larger questions about the political forces that shape our personal lives. Srinivasan discusses the complicated relationships between sex and racial justice, class, and disability. As she asks in her preface, what would it take for sex really to be free? We do not yet know. Let us try and see. Amia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to start with the way you start the book, which is one of the most concise definitions of feminism and why a woman might come to feminism that I've ever read. So I just would love for you to reiterate that. What is feminism and how does it relate to sex? I mean, the first thing I try and do as I open the book is distinguish the idea of feminism as a political struggle, as opposed to thinking of it as a perspective or a philosophy or a body of theory. It is also all of those things. Feminism has produced some of the greatest theories, certainly in the post-war moment that we have. But I think it's a critical mistake to identify it with the theory that it's produced. And it's very important to, I think, have quite a demanding notion of feminism as an ongoing political struggle, such that one doesn't count as a feminist simply insofar as one, you know, affirms a proposition like women and men should be equal or something like that. I think that's rather to lower the stakes of feminism. And I talk about where does feminism come from? And I it's in a sense, it's a bit of a just-so story. I'm not giving a historical account of the emergence of feminism. There's, of course, multiple, many feminisms throughout history across the world. But feminism, in a certain important sense, is born out of a woman's recognition of being assigned to a certain kind of role in society, having a particular role in relationship to the sexed body, the 
her perceived role in reproduction, but also the perceived role that she ought to have in, you know, the division of different forms of labor, things that aren't even considered labor. So the affective labor one might perform in the household, the nurturing of certain kinds of egos, the caring for certain forms of bodies, the reproduction of, of culture, and also the availability of the body for sex, for the sex in this other sense. But I think it's also very important. I mean, one of the things I try and say early on in the book is that you have this originary distinction that is drawn in almost all cases at birth or previous to birth, right, which is some form of assignment and to one of two sexes. There are some cases where that's not true. There are, of course, many cases where people will later come to feel like that assignment was wrong, right? So there's this kind of, this assignment is multiply violent in various kinds of ways, right? Because it sorts people into a normative role, placing them in a position in relation to a hierarchy of power that plays out in kind of quite obvious, but also some very subtle ways. But it's also a division that some people, many people will feel doesn't actually fit with their own sense of themselves, right? So there's a doubling of violence in that case. And I think it's also very important to understand the way in which this distinction, which is supposed to be a biological one, right? It's supposed to be simply responding to a set of pre-given, pre-cultural natural facts is in an important sense already cultured. Now, when people say that sort of thing, when Judith Butler says that sort of thing, they're very easily misread as denying that there is any kind of physical, biological reality to bodies. And that's not what I'm saying or what Judith Butler is saying. What we're saying instead is that the moment you assign someone to a sex, and you purport to be making this purely scientific biological distinction, you are in fact already doing an important piece of cultural work. You are saying what that body is for, what role it's supposed to play, not just in a cycle of biological reproduction, but in an economy of desire, of affect, of work, dignity, respect. And so in that important sense, sex, which kind of poses as this natural thing, is already culturally freighted with gender, right? It's always something that is weighed down by a set of normative expectations shaped by patriarchy. So that's the kind of opening thought of the book. Yeah. And I think that's just a good thing to foreground as we move forward. Thanks for reiterating that. How did you grow up thinking about yourself as a woman, just because I'm curious to know sort of, I see the intellectual trajectory here, but I'm also curious to know about like the personal trajectory that brought you to this work. And what was your sex education like? Because, you know, I think that seems like a big part of this book, the kind of sex education that we all receive. So would you mind talking a little bit about that? I think like many girls and young women, I felt quite trapped by normative notions of femininity, I found them incredibly repressive in all sorts of ways. So I remember from, I have this distinct memory, very young, of being expected, unlike my male cousins, to serve guests. I was a very young child. I was expected to just know my way around kitchens that weren't even mine and just immediately have some kind of sense of hostly kind of responsibility. And my male cousins were allowed to just like go out and play. (laughs) And I I hated that. And it was just one smallest instance of lots of forms of feminized socialization that I really disliked. What's interesting was for me, and I think this is very much an artifact of the particular moment at which I was kind of coming of age and then went to university, was that I didn't really have anything by way of a kind of formal introduction to feminism, right? So I remember in school, so I graduated from high school in 2003. I mean, no one was calling themselves a feminist in my social milieu. I had a French teacher who was horrified by this fact, you know, she was just this great, I mean, she still is, this just brilliant intellectual feminist and and just would ask us, you know, do you consider yourselves, do any of you consider yourself a feminist? And it felt like to us, like asking like, do any of you consider yourselves musketeers? Some kind of very outdated sort of notion that couldn't like possibly apply. And this is to answer your question about sex education. You know, I had programmatic versions of sex education. I moved around a lot as a young kid. So ended up having sex education in several different schools, all of which 
you know, varied in quality in various kinds of ways. But it was very interesting how depoliticized it was. It was in no way interested. All of those different forms of sex education were in no way interested in what we would call like the politics of sex. They were really about the mechanics of sex, staying safe, facts about reproduction, avoiding reproduction, and so on. There was very little interest in thinking about kind of dynamics of sex. There was very little conversation about non-normative forms of sex, about queer sex, certainly no mention of feminism or queer theory or really very anything apart from like the rudimentary basics. And I think that's a very kind of common experience. And then I went to college and there were feminists around, but it wasn't even then going to college in the kind of post 9-11 moment. It was a very strangely depoliticized time and very few people, I mean, the sort of one person I knew very well who confidently self-identified as a feminist, also identified as an anti-capitalist and, you know, but he was kind of the only one doing all of this stuff at once. And so it felt like a real outlier. And in part because I was a philosophy major, I was taught, not only sort of not taught any feminist theory, I was barely even taught by a woman. So my interest in feminist theory ended up running totally in parallel with my formal education from the very beginning. And it was only when I became a teacher myself, when I got my first academic job, that I started teaching. I sort of had a kind of formal engagement with feminism in the classroom. Yeah, it's interesting. In the book, it's these two are many, many strains of feminism and feminist thought that you put into conversation with each other. And there's a more kind of retrograde feminist thought that you bring back, which is like the Dworkin, Catherine mm -hmm. McKinnon, people who basically argue for the politicization <laughs> of basically all forms of sexual life and all forms of a woman's life and are arguing that that is all shaped by patriarchy, by men's opinions of, of women and their subordination. And then this other side that's basically like that you're shutting down women's own rights when you're trying to put too much emphasis on the political aspects of sexual life and of also of, of women's choices. So it's interesting that your own experience of feminism came from basically like very, very little awareness and then suddenly, you know, being so enmeshed in this huge argument and that has so many snags, you know? And so I guess I'm wondering, because your book is one of the reasons it's so brilliant is because it's putting those two sides in dialogue and not choosing exactly which one, you know, it carries an ambivalence throughout. And I really appreciate that. So I guess I'm wondering since we're speaking personally, when in your personal understanding and also, I guess, theoretical understanding of feminism, what was the first snag for you in terms of the history of feminism and maybe some of the lack of intersectionality in the past? What was the first like locus where you really started to see not so easy to just choose one string? I'll tell you certainly one of the first. I'm not sure if it's the very first, but it's the moment that sticks out in my mind. And it's a moment that feeds into the title essay of the book. And it comes from the experience of teaching these texts to my undergraduates when I first started teaching feminist theory. And so I was pairing, as one does, texts. I was getting them to explore precisely the kind of debate you were just describing, right? So on one hand, you had these so-called anti-sex feminists of the 70s, right? So people like Catherine McKinnon or Andrea Dworkin who wanted to see sex as almost entirely determined by patriarchy, about the eroticization of male domination and female submission, really didn't see any role for women's pleasure, women's sexual agency, sort of thought of both women's pleasure and women's sexual agency as a very thin compensation for the domination they experienced in the bedroom, which for both McKinnon and Dworkin acts as a kind of training ground for the oppression that women experience elsewhere, you know, in the classroom, in the workplace, on the street, and so on. And then on the other hand, you have a very important feminist movement that forcefully rejects that picture, right? The kind of sex positive movement associated with someone like Ellen Willis, most famously, who want to both descriptively, I think, deny that picture of sex, right? So they want to say, well, yes, yeah, sex is very often like that, but it's not always like that now. So look at, for example, 
practices of queer sex or especially lesbian BDSM. These are things that are actually creatively reimagining norms of sexual interaction beyond the patriarchal formation. But also, most importantly, this picture of sex that McKinnon and Dworkin were offering and that a picture that wanted to deny the kind of importance of women's pleasure and women's agency was, they thought, basically complicit in a conservative repression of women's sexuality. And it's very important that these arguments came to a head in the 80s with the rise of the new right in the US, who were hell-bent on the reinscription of the normative nuclear straight family, and who were very concerned about women's mass entry into the workplace, very concerned about the gay rights movement, and wanted to reaffirm a patriarchal understanding of gender where men went out to work and were kind of naturally aggressive and had to be tamed by the domesticating gentle forces of femininity. And so people like Ellen Willis pointed out that McKinnon and Working were kind of playing into that conservative picture, even while they wanted to, of course, deny it and were the enemies of it. And the way that contemporary feminists on the whole, especially young feminists, tend to relate to that debate is just to think of the sex positive side as just having won. I mean, historically, it has won, right, in the sense that it gives us the major framework for how we think about sex today. We generally think, look, as long as sex is happening between two consenting adults, it's fine. And that very much comes from a kind of sex-positive perspective, and it also is a perspective that embraces kink, non-normative forms of sexuality that wants to kind of think in complex ways about, you know, things like BDSM and porn, not just kind of assume that those are mechanisms that just oppress women. But one thing I, I noticed as I was teaching these things, these texts, was that the commitment to intersectionality that is also very central to kind of contemporary feminism, right? A commitment to thinking about the way in which gender oppression in, interacts with and is inflected by racial oppression, class oppression, and so on, demands, intersectionality actually demands that we engage the very political critique of sexual desire that the sex-negative feminists were advocating for. So to put this another way, if you just take up the sex-positive view, which says that we shouldn't have any moral interrogation into sexual desire, people want what they want, all we care about is that people are acting within the bounds of consent, like that thought stops us from actually noticing some stuff that I think an intersectional perspective wants us to notice, demands that we notice. For example, the way in which racism inflects the sexual economy and who is considered sexually desirable. The way in which ableism similarly inflects hierarchies of sexual desirability and romantic desirability. So I was noticing this kind of contradiction in the kind of present contemporary moment. So I think that was one of the, like the first major snags I that made me think, ah, okay, we need to think in more complex ways about how we litigate, as it were, this debate between sex-positive and sex-negative feminists. And let me just ask you a follow-up. So this is the subject, you know, of this essay that you published, The Right to Sex, that was, you know, the basis in some ways for this book, and that seemed to draw a huge, huge amount of controversy I mean, just based on, you know, I didn't realize that at the time, but based on this essay in your book. So how did people, what was the response, like the almost overwhelming response you got to expressing that idea that, yeah, there could be some political aspect of desire, for instance? I mean, I think the overwhelming response was, yes, that's right. <laughs> and we need to find a better way of being able to talk about that. And that was very much a response I especially got from gay men, people in queer communities generally people of color, women of color, all of whom confront the realities of the way in which, for example, racism and particular forms of racism like misogynoir shape the kind of sexual economy. So overall, the response was like, yes, I've been wanting to find a way to talk about this. And I'm really glad that we can talk about it. There is another form of response though, which is that, and I got some of this, just like, look, even engaging the question of the political formation of desire immediately raises the specter of sexual entitlement and therefore rape. Because you don't have to take that many steps 
I'm saying this in the voice of someone else. I don't think this is right. You don't have to take that many steps from the recognition that some people are unfairly kind of excluded from or downgraded within a sexual hierarchy to then think, well, those people are entitled to sex, which then takes us down like the very unmarried road to rape. That was also a view that I got. I think it's the wrong view. One reason to think it's the wrong view is that is just to take, for example, the Black women, right? So Black women in the US and the UK have this very long tradition of talking about sexual racism, right? And particularly the way in which Black women and Black women's bodies are sexually degraded and devalued, which isn't to say that Black women aren't the object of sexual attention, actually. It's quite the opposite, right? So, I mean, Angela Davis makes this point, that at the same time as the Black man is kind of coded as hyper promiscuous, the Black woman is seen as also likewise promiscuous and therefore sort of unrapeable. But what that means in practice, is, of course, is that she's rendered more rapeable. So if you think about how Black women feminists have thought about this, they find it very easy to do these two things at once. On one hand, to condemn the sexual racism that they experience, both you know, within a kind of broader white supremacist society, but also from Black men in particular, where you have a certain kind of fetishization of like light-skinned Black women versus darker-skinned Black women or white women over Black women. And they managed to do that at the exact same time as not expressing any form of sexual entitlement, right? You don't have Black women saying that they're entitled to have sex or that they're being deprived of their right to be sexually desirable or deprived of their right to have sex. So it's only when you take as your paradigm the sexually entitled man to think that these two things have to come together on their heels. Now, in practice, that might be the case when a certain kind of man entertains these issues, right? So you obviously see that in the case of incels, right? For whom there is no distance between the thought, oh, some people are maybe unfairly sexually marginalized and the thought, well, I'm entitled to have sex with women who don't want to have sex with me. But there's also a kind of feminist and queer practice of political interrogation of desire that stays very far away from patriarchal expressions of sexual entitlement and instead tries to open us up into a kind of, well, more utopian understanding of the role that desire might play in our lives if kind of loosened from the binds of injustice. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Amiya Srinivasan about her new book, The Right to Sex. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Kaveh Akbar on the line with us today. His latest book is called Pilgrim Bell. It's a collection of poems, and he is here to give us a book recommendation. Kaveh, what book are you going to recommend? Yeah, thanks so much. I want to recommend the poet Jane Hirschfield's anthology, Women in Praise of the Sacred. It tracks the human project of spiritual writing through 43 centuries of verse. It sort of works as a corrective for other spiritual writing anthologies, which have historically featured predominantly or exclusively men. Um, mm. And then maybe like Sappho, you know, for, fla- you know, <laughs> uh, for flavor. But yeah, it was my introduction to Antidwana, who is the earliest attributable author in human literature. It was my introduction to Patakara and my introduction to Mirabai and Mahadevyaka and so many of the now titans of my personal canon. I am in editing an anthology of just spiritual writing in general called the Penguin Book of Spiritual Verse, 100 Poets on the Divine. And Ooh. and that should be out at some point in the not too distant future. It's sort of stuck in permissions and mm. rights hell hell right now or purgatory. Purgatory, not hell. But it'll be out in the world eventually, and so on. And it is so, so, so indebted to Jane Hirschfield's book and so many of the voices that are featured in my anthology I learned of through hers. And I she's also a brilliant translator. 
a lot of the poems in Women in Praise of the Sacred are her own translations. For instance, her translations of Anhedwana, a lot of the translations that we had had of Anhedwana up until her book were done by anthropologists studying the ancient Sumerian cuneiform, right? As opposed to actual poets working with the sort of like raw language that had been translated. So she she sort of takes this sort of like raw starchy language of anthropology and like brings it into a kind of lyric idiom it's just a masterful collection in its curation and execution and it's one of my desert island books it sounds fantastic will you give us the title of the book again and the editor yes the title of the book is women in praise of the sacred and the editor is jane hirschfield jane h-i-r-s-h-f-i-e-l-d Thank you so much, Kaveh. Yeah, thank you guys so much. This is super, super fun. We've been talking to Kaveh Akbar. His latest book is called Pilgrim Bell. It's a collection of poems. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to a conversation with Amiya Srinivasan, author of The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century. And actually speaking about sort of the renderings of justice or injustice, you know, the first essay in this book is called Conspiracy Against Men. And one of the things that you talk about is the ways in which the politics of sex has also led to a kind of way in which people seek justice or seek to redress the offenses and the ways in which sexual entitlement sometimes rears itself in the public sphere. And can you talk a little bit about that? How do you understand the ways in which we have struggled with rendering justice? (laughs) And because it's a very complicated issue and rendering justice or injustice in these kinds of circumstances. The, The first thing to say is how extraordinarily inadequate the systems that are in place in, in most countries in the world, including the US and the UK where I am, at securing anything remotely like sexual justice and specifically uh, justice in light of sexual violence, male sexual violence against women. So we all are familiar with the statistics on, you know, how few women, you know, even sort of tell anyone that they've suffered sexual violence of one form or another, how few of those declarations result in actual investigations or convictions and so on. So the reason I I, I say this to begin with is because it has become this kind of common sense in the US, in the UK, in much of the world, that sexual violence has to be redressed in a carceral form, right? So what does it look like to address sexual violence? Well, it means to use the coercive apparatus of the state to find the male perpetrator and to and imprison him or find some other form of state-sponsored punishment. And if you are skeptical of this as a good way of remedying sexual injustice, people are often horrified because they think like, oh, you want these men to go unpunished. They are going unpunished, right? This is not a system that actually is at all effective at securing uh, justice. The women who go through the system overall feel incredibly let down and and disappointed um, and often re-traumatized. And Chanel Miller's book um, about being sexually assaulted by Brock Turner is kind of fascinating in this way because she is her story is in the sense of victory, right? Like she got this, the prosecution and she got, you know, she got the conviction. But when you read the the process she goes through, the re-traumatizing that she goes through, you just think, oh my God, we must be able to do something better than this. So I think we've got to start from the place where we understand that these, that the system already fails most women. I think we also need to understand the way in which that system, a carceral system, disproportionately lets down and harms the most marginalized women. So the the most classic case of this is when we think about domestic violence. So intuitively, the common sense is, well, okay, if a woman is suffering from domestic violence, what she needs is a police officer to knock on the door and, you know, drag her male partner uh, into prison. And then that will scare him. And then he'll be able to come back and he'll be like, I don't know, he'll stop doing that to her. Now, the problem is, is that's not what in fact happens, right? So 
there's a huge amount of retaliatory violence when men come back from you know being taken to a jail cell overnight and that is especially true in communities with high unemployment, high poverty, high substance abuse, which of course are disproportionately communities of color, working class communities, right? So what happens is policies that that are supposed to solve domestic violence that are oriented around um, you know, the police and prisons actually increase incidents of violence against uh, poor women of color. And so you think, well, what else should we do? Well, it's actually what you what do you want for a woman who is um suffering from domestic violence well one thing you want for her is the ability to leave why can't she leave well she can't leave because she's poor so the number one reason why women have to stay with domestic abusers is because uh they can't afford to to leave so what would it look like for for us to live in a system where economically uh you know women weren't made structurally vulnerable to male violence because of inequality and poverty and what's very interesting is that when feminists in the late 60s and 70s in the US um, and elsewhere started thinking about these problems as these kind of structural political problems, right? Rape, domestic violence, other forms of sexual violence, harassment, they didn't reach immediately to the coercive apparatus of the state, right? They were interested in things like community shelters, right? Changing the patterns of the nuclear family, um, changing the fundamental economic structure of capitalism that so to so as to not make women so vulnerable to forms of violence. And it's only later on, once we get into the 70s and late 70s and 80s, that feminists in the US start reaching to the carceral apparatus. And that's also the moment when the state comes to love feminists. It's in the interest of the state to have a group of previously rabble-rousing radicals who were demanding the fundamental reorganization of society to all of a sudden be next to you as you're signing in laws that put more police on the streets, right? Uh, disproportionately target men of color, right? To increase uh, mass imprisonment, which disproportionately also targets uh, men of color, but also just poor men in general. So there's an important transformation here that happens within feminism and feminism's relationship to the state power. And I think part of what we need to do is kind of not simply return to the idealism of that early feminist moment that was anxious about state power, but to draw some inspiration from it and one thing it reminds you is just like, oh, this this common sense is just one way of doing things. There might be other levers to push. There might be other strategies that would wouldn't leave uh, women disproportionately, certain women especially disproportionately susceptible to sexual violence. Yeah, in that chapter, you know, there's some discussion of these like famous men who have had their lives ruined by you know the fact that they serially harassed women. Um, you know, over decades, you know, the, their ruining of of that and their fate and and not necessarily an accepting of what the harm they've done, but more of like a stewing in their own self-pity. And I know this isn't quite the focus of your book, but just because it's it's come up so much. And, and then there's also this case of like, you know, someone in college who had what seems like a very minor or maybe we shouldn't say minor, but just maybe like a, a sex act that was very like patriarchally designed, which is just like expecting that they should get off, you know, and um, maybe not even pressuring it, but because it's so self-internalized, it happened. And their their life was also ruined for that. Um, and it seems like those offenses are not on the same par, of course. So I guess looking at this model of, you know, community organizing, you know, anti, like anti-carceral activism, all these things. But at the same time, I guess I'm curious, like what's your feeling of, of how someone should quote unquote punished for sexual harassment, for sexual assault? Like, do, do you think that someone should be punished for that? So I think it's really important to, as you were indicating, to remember that you can be critic of carceralism while still being sort of open to the idea of punishment being important, right? So, I mean, for example, people in a, in the kind of prison abolitionist, prison abolition or anti-carceral movement will talk about transformative justice processes or restorative justice processes, which involve typically a huge amount of difficult conversation and confrontation uh, between the 
facilitated a confrontation between like the perpetrator and his victim and a larger community. And I think properly understood at the psychic level, like that's punishing, right? In the same way that I think being roundly condemned on Twitter is also punishing. And I think that's, and I think that might be okay. I mean, it might be the case that that's exactly what certain people need. I don't think we do ourselves justice in a kind of complex conversation about sexually abusive men and forms of redress by acting as if getting piled on on Twitter, it like involves no form of social sanction. I think it, I think it does. And it has interesting psychic effects. And I think feminists should think carefully about how they want to wield that power and who gets to decide how we wield that power, because currently it's not done in a particularly top-down way. So I think the answer to the question of like whether people just, you know, should be punished, it's, it's, it's very contextual and specific. So, you know, you talked about two different cases here. So one of the cases I talk about in the book is this uh, Black college student who, as you were saying, engages in the sex act with um, a fellow student, a woman, she feels the need to keep on giving him a hand job, even though she doesn't want to anymore, but it's not like he's particularly pressuring her to do so. She does it, she says, because she's just internalized those norms, right? There's just this expectation that, I think she even says like, you mass women kind of need to like finish what they started, right? Which is a completely recognizable uh, patriarchal norm. But it's not like the coercion is coming from the guy himself, right? It's, But nonetheless, she comes out of that sexual interaction and says that she felt violated and says that she, she's been assaulted sexually, which just descriptively doesn't really seem to be the, the right account of what happened. And then what follows is the mobilization of the whole Title IX apparatus, which is itself a kind of quasi-carceral uh, apparatus. He ends up having a mental breakdown, uh, moving off campus, and you know, ultimately he sues the university and and wins uh, for an an undisclosed uh, settlement. And it seems to be the kind of case that's just crying out for some kind of transformative justice process, right? Like, what would it look like for these two people, these two young people, to sit down and for her to tell him? what was going on in her mind and how it made her feel and and that all of the form of kind of gender training that she had had that led her to this point of which he is probably blithely unaware right but maybe he also has a story to tell about the norms of masculinity and how he's ended up at this point and what you know so that seems to me to be the kind a case where there's this kind of lost possibility then you have cases like, you know, all of these very high profile men like Louis C.K. and Harvey Weinstein, you know, various people who not only who were just completely aware of what they were doing. And the thing that gets me about how we sometimes talk about those cases, right, where we talk about Me Too going too far is people lament uh, those men as having a fallen afoul of new rules that are changing so quickly they couldn't possibly keep up with them. But I just think that's a bad description of what's going on, right? I mean, Harvey Weinstein got off on knowing that he was violating the rules and getting away with it. It wouldn't have been exciting to him had he not known he was abusing his power. Louis C.K., who had the habit of masturbating non-consensually in front of women uh, colleagues and women subordinates, once blushed bright red when a woman told him not to do it, right? What is that blush of shame, right? I mean, he he knew that he was doing something that he shouldn't shouldn't be doing. And it's sort of no surprise because like, it's not like women have just been silently for all of these decades, right? In these men's lives, just happily going along with these things, right? There are forms of protest, quiet, subtle, personal, but also more organized that put these men in a position, position to know better. So what's changing isn't the rules, but basically whether they're going to be enforced or not. And whether they're going to be penalized for, for violating them. So I think, yeah, there, there are sort of different cases and we would do well to, and I don't mean to say that there are only two kinds, like there are a whole range of different cases. And I think we would do well to think about what's appropriate in to each of them. We touched on the subject a little bit earlier, but uh, you dedicated an entire essay to porn. And as we sort of talked about the, the sort of older arguments that have run up against the more sex-positive feminist movement. Could you talk a little bit about that kind of 
the modern or contemporary kind of conflict of those two things and mm. maybe how it's playing out with younger people in particular, since also, as you point out in this book, there's so much panic around what younger people are doing sexually. <laughs> it's an eternal panic, but and ways in which you discovered how they are actually relating to sex mm. and to depictions of sex. Yes, I definitely don't want to fuel a sex panic about younger uh, people. And sometimes I think, you know, I, I think there's a way of misreading, I'm not suggesting you do this, misreading my chapter on porn that kind of sees me as doing that. Um, oh, I didn't, I did not think you were doing that at all. Oh, I thought it was like <laughs> heartening, actually, because you you pointed out that the young people are actually quite in, informed and and understand the kinds of dynamics that they are but that they're grappling with simultaneously that are sometimes contradictory yeah that's how I, I I feel um yeah sort of hopeful about it too so yeah the thing that uh struck me um when I started teaching these kind of classic anti-porn feminist texts to my students well uh, was just how how much they resonated with them so I I, I thought my students would find reading you know McKinnon or Dworkin on porn um to be kind of irrelevant and old fashioned and passe for two reasons. One, because their generation is just kind of instinctively pro-sex. And so they are hostile to kind of moralizing about, about sex and sexual representation, but also because the internet, right? So they experience porn online. It's totally ubiquitous for them. Um, and I just assumed that they would think of these kind of anti-porn arguments as speaking to a moment when porn was in principle containable, which it no longer is, and therefore being kind of irrelevant to them. So I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying that there's a very important way in which my students profoundly disagree with McKinnon and Dworkin on the whole, which is that my students are very hostile to the idea of trying to legislate against sex work. And so, you know, they have a very clear understanding that attempts to legislate against sex work, however well-intentioned, invariably harm the women who work in sex work, who are already very often like the most marginalized women in society, right? So they think that legislating against pornography is not only impractical, but like positively a social evil. <laughs> At the same time, they find these descriptions that McKinnon and Dworkin give of what porn does, right? It's its ability to sort of teach people how to have sex, very compelling. They feel like their experience very often is being described. And they quickly see a kind of irony in the age of internet porn, which is that the internet is supposed to open up this world of kind of endless possibility. And in, in principle, you would think the internet would allow for the free exploration of like kink and sexual identity. And, you know, and, and it can do that. But for my students, they very often experience internet porn as closing down possibilities and pushing them to have a very constrained set of ideas about what is kind of sexually desirable, uh, but also what's like normatively expected of them in the sexual performance themselves, in the sexual performance itself. It's so weird that then when you talk about some of the regulations that have come, say, in Britain around what can and can't be depicted in porn, that those are actually much more associated with like femme porn, I think it's what you call it, um, things that that wouldn't seem necessarily to threaten women as much as possibly to threaten the way men are being depicted and, and you know, used in a, in a porno. So I guess, so I'm curious to hear you talk about that. And also maybe again, like, I guess it just comes back to this question of like, we need to legislate. We cannot legislate like that, that every move towards that would seem like move any move towards legislation um, or limiting, you know, what could be shown in porn ends up not necessarily addressing like the underlying issue, which is of the way it depicts women. Yeah, I think that's um, such a good way of putting the issue. So when states legislate against porn, they end up, but what ends up being left is kind of norm core vanilla porn, right? Which is the stuff that was at the center of McKinnon and Dworkin's targets, right? It's the kind of, it's that very basic pornographic script where you have a dominant man, right? 
who like where the physically dominates there's penile penetration it ends in a cum shot maybe he like slaps her around not even slaps around do you know what i mean it's just sort of like that's what it is it's all centered around his pleasure and what ends up being legislated against are things like you know femdom porn where where there's actually an inversion um you know porn where like where which centers on like women's physical pleasure things like face sitting like women sitting on men's faces um and the it's not surprising, right? So one way of thinking of this is, oh, just like legislation is 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 bad, right? All of this legislation has been uh, uh, poorly designed. But I think a better way of thinking of this is actually to take up um, kind of ironically a notion that McKinnon offers, which is that the state very often <laughs> sees and treats women the way like men see and treat women. So very often the state, when it legislates porn, like thinks that normative male dominant female sub female subordinate porn is like is good normal porn it's just everything else everything else that's like kinky or involves bondage or like non-normative sex acts like that's what needs to be get rid of but actually that's what we need way more of and actually what's really pernicious is like the the norm core mainstream so i think legislation's a, a non-starter i'm very hostile to the notion of legislating against sex work but there's also just the the kind of practical thing of well it's very hard to regulate the internet countries that try to do this only ever do it half successfully um india has tried to do this immediately pornhub creates um a mirror site and indians who are huge porn consumers uh, get around uh, the restrictions china has had some success but only because it's willing to use a huge amount of resources to actually stop individual people watching watching porn pornography Again, I think this is uh, obviously not the not the way to go. The kind of standard alternative is something like we need better sex education, we need porn literacy, and I think that's 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 right in a sense. I think there, but you know, there are kind of structural issues here that we don't totally talk about. So it's very hard to teach someone how to read a text that you can't legally show them. So if you're trying to teach porn literacy to people who are under 18, you can't legally show them pornography. So you're like, I'm going to teach you read a text and I'm not going to encourage you to go look at that text. But if you do go look at that text, here's how you should read it. Like that that, that would be a tall order for, for any great teacher of, of close reading. Um, that said, I think if anyone were capable of creating um, really great uh, porn um, literacy programs, it would be the women who work in porn themselves because they have an extraordinarily sophisticated understanding of the, of like the simulacrum that is porn and it's, and it's irrealism um, and it's manufactured quality. Um, and they're very um, eloquent on that topic as on many other topics. And, you know, and, and so there are, there are people who are of course thinking creatively about how you, how you talk about porn and, and teach people to think in kind of ways that aren't just constrained by the pornographic mainstream. Something that I've been wondering about and that you uh, allude to in the book, and I hate to try to make you prognosticate on a big topic as we close, but um, is the sense that many more women identify as feminists today, but that perhaps many more women identify as feminists today because the circumstances for women have actually become more difficult or, you know, just around certain things like uh, the expectations for for women, uh, at least visually. So I, I guess I'm curious if you feel how you feel the movement is moving forward. Now, feminism is not quite as much of a dirty word as it was, but do you feel like expectations for women have, have actually become more unrealistic uh, and that that women are up against kind of like a, a worse predicament than in the past or what are your feelings on that? I feel like the world has got a lot worse for all of the worst of people, <laughs> including a lot of women. Spiraling global inequality and stagnating wages and environmental degradation harms lots of people, but it disproportionately uh, harms women. Um, and then you also have uh, the rise of kind of ne certain kind of neoliberal understanding of the self and the self as a product and a project to be curated. And I think that speaks to your absolutely correct point that women are under stronger 
expectations now more than ever in terms of self-presentation. And even at the same time as more and more young people openly kind of flout gender expectations in, in you know. So yes, I, I think there's there's never anything like progress without regress, right? I think things always get better in some respects and get and get worse in others. I do think the there is a kind of broad general sense of crisis that I think began in the kind of post 9-11-2008 moment onwards, which has propelled a kind of embrace of radical politics of all forms, um, anti-capitalist politics, anti-racist politics, feminist politics. And I think that's all to the good, but I do think it comes out of a general feeling of despair, right? There was a promise I mean, in the U.S. in particular, there was, there was a, you know, some some promise that we were at the end of, uh, you know, the need for identity-based movements, and here we are in a an economy that immiserates like ever increasing numbers of people, including like previously middle class people, right, who are now a kind of new precariat. Gendered violence has hardly disappeared. Incarceration rates slow, very slowly going down, but still an enormous uh, issue. You have a racist police force. And now you have the effect of overturning of Roe v. Wade. I mean, that's the situation we're in. And it is very, it's it's very difficult because how to understand the relationship between political consciousness and circumstances. Because, you know, there's one, there's one kind of, a certain kind of Marxist view, which says, well, you need things to get really bad in order to basically trigger a kind of revolutionary possibility. But if you look at his also important kind of historical moments of revolutionary possibility, for example, the U.S. Women's Liberation Movement in the late 60s, part of what was fueling that was, um, at least along certain dimensions and for certain women, an, an increase in the quality of their lives. And the mass immiseration of, you know, the worst off people in the U.S. raises a really difficult question, I think, for feminists and the left more broadly about like, well, where does that revolutionary change come from? Who has the time? Thank you so much, Amia, for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Amia Srinivasan. Her new book is called The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.